So good morning. Some of you know that most Sundays I'm over at Maple Root Baptist Church uh, filling in. They've been without a pastor for some time, and so I fill in there on Sunday mornings. They actually have a candidate there this morning, um, so they're on the road. You can keep them in your prayer that, that they'll be able to find the pastor that, that God has for them um, as they move forward. And uh, some of you may also remember, I, I, the last time that I was here, I asked this question, um, it's become my signature. I ask this question every time I get a chance to, to share God's Word uh, with anyone, uh, and I ask it every week at, at Maple Root. Uh, the question is this, are you reading your Bible? I changed the question. A long time ago, I used to ask my kids, do you know where your Bible is? And they'd say, yeah, it's in the car. So they knew where it was, and i say, are you reading it? That's the important question. But I want to ask a, a little, uh, an, an additional question to you this morning. What place does the Bible occupy in your home? Is it under a stack of books somewhere on a bookshelf? So maybe it's on the nightstand being used as a coaster for your coffee cup, uh, maybe somewhere else. And uh, I say that because it reminds me of something that my grandmother said to me um, that I never forgot. And, and she said, um, the Bible always on top. Nothing on top of the Bible has a place of priority. Of course, the scripture doesn't require that, doesn't, doesn't tell us anything about where to put the Bible, but I like that, that she said that, it, 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 and I encourage you, um, I have, if, if you see me walking with my Bible and I have anything else with me, the Bible's always on top. If I try to have my phone in the same hand, it's, the phone's underneath the Bible, it's not on top of it, and it's just a, a personal thing. It, has, it, it doesn't get me points with God. Um, what it does, though, is it reemphasizes to me my commitment to Him and to His Word and the place that it should have in my life. And so I encourage you, nothing on top of the Bible, make it first place. Um, it is the revelation of God. Think about that. God wants us to know Him. God wants us to know His plans. God wants us to reach out to Him. He, he doesn't want to be mysterious to us. And His Word tells us so much that we need to know, and not just theologically, but practically for how we live our lives. The scripture itself talks a lot about its authority and its power and its usefulness for us. And, and maybe no place in the Bible is, is it, does it talk about itself and, and, and its power and its authority more than in Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. So I want to share with you 176 verses in that chapter. I want to share with you just 10 of them uh, this morning about the Word of God. And, and the power that it has for us. Uh, verse 11, a verse many of us know, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Isn't that good? It protects us, right? When, when, our, when, when our heart's telling us, go, go this way, go this way, and then you have the word of God in your heart, and it says, no, don't go that way. Go this way. Stay protected. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. A few verses later, verse 14 says, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. Now, I know that if you won the lottery today, you rejoice, right? You say, wow, look at all that money. I rejoice in those riches. That the psalmist here says, I rejoice in your word that way. I rejoice in your laws that way. And verse 16 says, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. What a powerful statement. I will not neglect your word. 
Verse 24 says, Your statutes are my delight. They're my counselors. Want advice? Need advice? Need guidance? The Word of God is our counselor. And it promises that not just the words themselves, but the very Spirit of God will guide us into all truth. Verse, 27, uh, verse 97 of Psalm 119 says, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. That goes hand in hand with having it in your heart. Meditate, thinking deeply about it, pondering it, wondering about it, applying it. Verse 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. It's a nice analogy, right? Because we, we can we can. We can taste it, right? We think about honey, think about your favorite food, how it tastes. You can, you can anticipate it. It's how the Word of God is. It's how the Word of God should be. Something we anticipate, like something we really like to eat. We want to consume it. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Shows me where I'm going. You ever try to walk down a path in the dark? It's hard. Right? You're, you become fearful. What is that? I can't see. I've got to go slower. Ah, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Makes it clear. Verse 111, your statutes are my heritage forever. They're the joy of my heart. It's where my roots are. The word of God, my heritage. Verse 165, great peace. Great peace have they who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. There's a whole lot of things in life that want to make us stumble, right? They're there to make us stumble. By their very nature, they make us stumble. But the flip side of that, if we love the Word of God, if we're in the Word of God, what do we get? Not fear, not anxiety, peace. Something you can't buy. Can't go to the store and purchase it. But it's free from the Word of God. Peace. And verse 167, I obey your statutes for I love them greatly. Those are just a few of the verses that Scripture testifies about itself. There are many more. I encourage you to read that whole psalm. But that's why I ask you if you're reading your Bible. It has so much to offer, so much benefit. I want that, those words of this psalmist, to be my testimony in life. I want it to be your testimony in life. So I ask you, are you reading your Bible? And then today I ask you, what place does the Bible occupy in your home? But the best question is, what place does the Bible occupy in your life? Where is it? Now today I want to look with you in Scripture at one of the most famous Bible stories of all. And a man who loved God and who pursued the Word of God. And he didn't have the Word of God like we have it today, but to the extent that he had access to it, he pursued the Word of God. The man's name is Daniel, and the story is Daniel and the lion's den. Now, even if your Bible's been on the shelf and you haven't looked at it in 30 years, you probably know the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Or at least you know part of the story. Someone said to me recently, oh, yeah, um, he made it, didn't he? (laughs) Yes, he did. We're going to look at Daniel chapter 6 today. It teaches us a lot of things. Partially, it teaches us about God's perspective on civil disobedience. You know, the Bible tells us in multiple places 
to obey the authorities that have been set over us, to obey the government, to support the government, to pray for the government. But in some cases, like the one we read here, we're called upon to stand against certain things. We're called upon to stand in opposition. And Daniel gives us a good model for how to do that. 2,500 years since he did it, we may be called upon to take a stand. And we need to know how to do it. But before we look at the story, I want to start with a little perspective. When you go to an event, sometimes at church, you go to a, a, a party, you go somewhere else, and you meet somebody that you don't know very well or don't know at all, many times the first thing they ask you is, so what do you do? Right? You know, another way to ask is, who do you work for? Where do you work? Who do you work for? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Because we spend a big chunk of our time, a large percentage of our lives, we spend struggling for the legal tender, right? Working, working a job. Who do you work for? And I think Daniel knew the answer to that question. We're going to talk a little bit more about why he was where he was, but he was a prisoner of war in captivity in the land of Babylon, in the service of the king of Babylon. So if you asked him, who do you work for? His immediate answer might be, oh, I work for the king of Babylon. But his real answer, and these words hadn't yet been written by the Apostle Paul, but he knew him. He knew the principle. We find it in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Says these, says this, Whatever you do, do it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you're working for. It is the Lord Christ you're serving. That's what it says. See, Daniel knew that. Now, the, the immediate answer, he does, I work for the king of Babylon. But his real answer is, I work for the king of kings. It's him who I serve. And God may call us to any one of a variety of different kinds of employment. Now, I want you to think about this. Who do you work for? You work for Jesus. Wherever he has you working. And Daniel knew that. And knowing that, that he was working for God and not for the king, not for his own advancement, not for anything else but to serve God, that's what sustained him during his ordeal. He trusted God, and so he knew what to do. Now, the lion's den episode here is recorded in Daniel chapter 6. I would encourage you to read the whole book of Daniel. Daniel, at this point, is about 80 years old or so, old and wise. Now, he's been a prisoner of war for about 60 years at this point. And he knew that the reason that they were in Babylon was because God's judgment had come to the nation of Israel. God had warned and warned and warned that if they failed to obey him, that ultimately they were going to be taken out of the promised land, the place of safety, the place of his presence. They were going to be exiled in judgment. And they were. And Daniel was a young noble in the nation of Israel. And he was exiled, about 20 years old. And they took these young guys, and they said, well, this guy's fit, they're smart, they're good-looking. These are the guys that are going in the king's service. And so Daniel was brought into the king's service. Maybe an easier assignment as a prisoner of war, but Daniel didn't start out that way. You can go to chapter 1, and you can see that when he started out, he didn't want there to be any mistake as to where anything that he had that was great or positive or powerful, any, wherever it came, he didn't want any mistake, there to be any mistake about where it came from came from God. And so he said, I don't want the king's provision now because I don't want it to be said that the king's provision is what made us 
smart or strong or sustained us. And so they said, give us just vegetables and water to eat. We won't have the king's fancy provisions and see if that doesn't work. So Daniel was making a statement, not that it's better to eat vegetables than to eat meat, but he was making a statement that my provision comes from God. And God is, what, God is the one who gives me the ability to do anything if I have the ability to do anything at all. And we see that God provided for Daniel and used him greatly. In fact, in chapter 2, we get a, 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 a glimpse of how God used him in the service of the king. The king had a dream, Nebuchadnezzar, and he couldn't figure out the dream, and he was very upset. He was going to kill all his wise men. He said, if you can't tell me the dream and tell me what it means, you're all going to die. And Daniel and his friends prayed to God, and God showed him the dream. It was about the future of the world. You can read about it again in chapter 7. God gave Daniel a, a similar dream, telling him what the future is going to hold. Then he gave him a, a vision to show him when Messiah was going to come. Very powerful book of prophecy. But he gave him, that, he gave him the ability to interpret the king's dream in chapter 2 to show him what was going to happen. And now, as he still lives in captivity in the service of the king, that vision is starting to play out. You can go to Daniel chapter 5 and you can read about Nebuchadnezzar's descendant, Belshazzar. And he didn't follow the Lord. He didn't remember what, his, what, his, what Nebuchadnezzar had learned. And so he went as always having a big party and he took all the stuff from the temple in Jerusalem and he was serving the wine and the goblets from the temple. And remember the story of the writing on the wall? And the hand wrote on the wall, so you've been weighed in the balance. You've been found wanting. And your kingdom's over now. And it was a fulfillment, the first part of the fulfillment of that vision that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2. And Babylon, which looked like it was so strong nobody would ever take it over, was taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire. And Darius, the Mede, came into power. It says that at the very end of chapter 5. That's the context for chapter, for chapter 6. So Daniel, and he knows, and he tells us later in the book, that through the book of Jeremiah, by studying the words of Jeremiah, he knew that the captivity would last 70 years. So he's getting close to the end. He's, I'm sure he's, he's very interested in seeing how it all plays out. But we see that Babylon now has been taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire, and Darius has become the king, and that's where we pick up the story. So let's take a look at the first few verses here of Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps, and that is a word we don't use very often, just means kingdom protectors. That's what they were there for, to protect the interests of the king. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So once again, Daniel's work is setting him apart. God's blessing him in his captivity and in his work for the king. And God has established him as a leader. Now, I don't know everything that Daniel prayed or, or knew from Scripture, but one of the Psalms, if you go to Psalm 90, Moses didn't write a lot of the Psalms that are in the Bible, but he wrote that one. Moses, the great leader of Israel, he wrote Psalm 90. In the last verse of Psalm 90, it says... May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. I think it's a prayer Daniel understood. He prayed it. It's a good prayer to pray. Establish the work of our hands, Lord. Establish the work of our hands. Guide us and then sustain us. And that's where Daniel was in his captivity. He knew who he was working for. 
And Daniel distinguished himself, it says. He excelled when nobody but God was looking. He knew who he was working for. And God blessed him and made him stand out. And what do you think that brought as a reaction from his co-workers? Anger. Jealousy. We don't know exactly why they were angry or jealous. Maybe because he was getting an advancement that they wanted. Maybe because they were actually corrupt and were stealing from the king on the side. And it was hard to do that with a guy like Daniel there. Whatever, whatever the case is, we see here in, in verse 4, at this the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. He had integrity. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we'll never find a basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. And that's where they finally get him. What a great testimony, huh? May it be found of me, it may be found of you, that no one can bring a charge against us except that we're devoted to God. And that's where they try to get us. Hatred here, born of jealousy and selfish ambition. They figure the only way we can get this guy is through his belief in God. And so they hatch a plan. Look at verse 6. It says, So the administrators and the satraps, they went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree. Put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Wow. I stopped there before reading verse 9. You might want to underline that one in your Bible, verse 9. It's just eight words. Mighty consequence, though. Response of unprepared selfish pride. See what it says? So King Darius put the decree in writing. Didn't think it through. He didn't think. He, he thought, hey, pray to me. What a splendid idea. Make me the center of everyone's attention. What a good idea. He didn't think about what it might mean. They caught the king off guard. They trapped him with flattery. We're warned about that, you know, as followers of Christ. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, he wrote the book of Jude, just one chapter. In verse 16 of that chapter, speaking about false teachers, he says, they flatter others for their own advantage. They follow their own evil desires, just like these guys did. And they, flatter, they boast about themselves, and they flatter others for their own advantage. The king got caught by that. He's flattered. He's proud and makes him respond too quickly. He doesn't think it through. Paul encourages us to think things through too. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, he writes, For by the grace given unto me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. The king doesn't do that. And he's trapped. We need to watch out for that trap appeals to our selfish pride. It's one of the ways Satan tries to get us. See, and now we get to the heart of the story. And we, see, and we start to see Daniel's proper civil disobedience. So the king signs this decree. 
And now Daniel's in a spot. Because, see, they know that every day Daniel prays openly. Now, there's been no conflict. He's served the king well. He's distinguished himself. Nobody said anything. Prays three times a day, looking out his window, facing Jerusalem. Prays for his nation. Prays for his people. Prays for the nation where he's held captive. And now he's put in a predicament. Does he obey the new decree and stop praying? Does he try to hide? What does he do? Many times as Christians, when the question of civil disobedience confronts us, we get it wrong. We get defiant. We get up in arms. We start a march. I think we can learn something from Daniel. Let's see what he did here. Verse 10. Now when Daniel learned the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Of course, these guys were watching and waiting for that. These men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help, so they went to the king and spoke to him about the royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days anyone who prays to any god or man except you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So he still hadn't thought it through. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, it was like, uh-oh. He realized what a stupid thing he'd done. Because the king liked Daniel, and he knew how much he benefited from Daniel's good service. When the king heard this, verse 14, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. But as we learn in life, sometimes our stupid decisions have consequences that we can't undo, and the king couldn't undo this. It says, the men went as a group to the king and said to him, Hey, remember, O king that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. And he could not sleep. Ever been there? I have. You did something that you felt was so dumb you couldn't sleep. And you tried to figure out how do I undo this consequence. See, it's interesting though how Daniel behaved. He didn't change his ways. He still prayed to God. His testimony stayed the same. He didn't hide. He practiced his faith openly. It says here, just as he had done before. He doesn't hide, but he doesn't chide either. He's not in their face. He doesn't say you're a bunch of self-serving jerks, even though they may have been. He doesn't claim innocence or cry unfair. He honors the government where he's being held captive. And he's being held captive. He's a POW, and he still honors the authority of that government, even though it's wrong. He doesn't say they made an unjust law. He disobeyed the unjust law. But all the evidence we have here in Scripture is that he accepted the penalty willingly and humbly. But I read it and I think, I wonder how 
he looked at the king. I wonder how the king looked at him. There's an exchange that takes place there. See, in verse 16, it says, The king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him in the den of lions. And the king said to Daniel, as this was happening, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. May he do it. And they looked at each other, I'm sure. It doesn't say whether Daniel said anything. Can you imagine that exchange? The king desperately wants to save Daniel, but he can't. And when they exchanged glances, I'm sure they both felt the pain. They both felt the sorrow. But I'm sure that when Daniel looked at him, he conveyed something else. Great peace. Great peace have they that trust your word, right? Great peace. And Daniel, I'm sure, looked at him with peace. I don't think Daniel knew whether he would be rescued or eaten. But he had peace that passes all understanding because he lived with the knowledge of Colossians 3. He knew who he worked for. He knew God. And he knew God could be trusted with his life. That's a hard one for most of us, isn't it? Can I really trust God with my life? Now we know it in a, in a theoretical sense, but in a practical sense. We need to know it too. Whether God would deliver him or not, I don't think he knew that at this point in time unless the Holy Spirit had, had given him that knowledge. doesn't say that he did. But Daniel knew who was in charge. He knew who he worked for. And Daniel's faith and his lifestyle, they inspire the king, who doesn't yet know God. They inspire King Darius to have hope against hope. Now, what's the chance that you get thrown in a den full of hungry lions and you survive the night? Not much of a chance, right? But Darius, because he knew of Daniel's past situations and circumstances and said, seen how God had worked in them, he hoped against hope. See, he goes down there, verse 19, says, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? He doesn't know Daniel's God yet, but he knows Daniel's faith. Isn't that an amazing testimony? Daniel's faith had been so strong that the king thought maybe, perhaps, perhaps, he didn't get eaten up. And so he says that. doesn't tell us how long a period of time goes by before he hears a reply. But he does hear a reply. Verse 21, Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. See, we see the results of Daniel's proper approach to civil disobedience. The Bible doesn't say God always will rescue us physically. Now you can go to Hebrews chapter 11 and you can read both sides of the coin where there are people who are sought into and stoned and brutalized and taken advantage of and suffer greatly. 
and are martyred for their faith. Then there are others, it says, who receive back their dead, who are protected like Daniel was. We don't know when God does and when God doesn't, but Daniel knew he could trust God. And God preserved him here, not so much because he wanted Daniel to live longer, but because of Daniel's testimony and the work that God still had for him to do here. Daniel was safe regardless of whether he was eaten or not. A friend of mine wrote down for me once, I, had it, I used to have it in my Bible, uh, safety is not the absence of danger, it's the presence of the Lord. Because what if Daniel had been eaten? Okay, victory, he goes to heaven. He didn't get eaten? Victory, he stays and he helps the king and accomplish God's purpose for the nation of Israel. But God saved him to help this king learn this lesson and help us learn a lesson about proper, the proper approach to civil disobedience. When vindicated, how does Daniel respond? In humility and with integrity, his first words are, O king, live forever. But he also notes the justice of his cause. God saved me because I didn't do anything wrong against you, O king. And he wants to make a point to the king that there's no incompatibility between his faith in God and his service to the king. We run into that sometimes in our own secular work, don't we? Well, your faith in God is inhibiting to your job. You've got to get rid of that. No, no. My faith in God helps me be a better person at work, helps me do a better job at work, helps me serve this organization better. That was Daniel was saying, that his submission to God made his service to the king better. And he was vindicated. It says no wound, in verse 23, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And you can go back and read chapter 3, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and being thrown into the fiery furnace. And I love that story because they say, in fact, they, they say to uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, um, our God is able to save us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to your image. We're going to keep our integrity before God. And then when God saved them and Nebuchadnezzar looked in, they weren't being burned up and there was actually a fourth person in there with them. He says, hey, come on out of there. And they come out and it says they weren't burned, their hair wasn't singed. It says there wasn't even the smell of fire on them. Don't you love that? I mean, can you go build a campfire and not have the smell of fire all over your clothes? You know, yeah, you, you, you can't avoid it. You get the smell of fire. These guys are in a furnace that was so hot that the guards who threw them in got burned up and died, right? And they come out, they don't even have the smell of fire on them. Daniel came out, not a scratch on him. He didn't barely survive. He walked out the same way he walked in, not a scratch on him. God saved him. No, no wound. No wound was found on him because he trusted in his God. God's not challenged by people, by strong kings, by kingdoms, by your employer, by anything. God's not challenged by the schemes of men. We can trust God. That's why I ask you today, who do you work for? Know who you work for and trust Him. That's the theme of Psalm 37. But before we get to that, no, let's get to that now. Psalm 37 is a great psalm. It starts out by saying, uh, do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they'll soon wither. Like green plants, they'll soon die away. In verse 5 of that psalm, it says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He'll do this. He'll make your righteousness shine like the dawn. 
the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. That's a great picture, isn't it? And it goes on in the next verses to say, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. And you go down to verse 12 of that psalm. It says, The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. I can't even say that verse without smiling. So the Lord laughs at the wicked. In verse 18 of that psalm, it says, The days of the blameless are known to the Lord, and their inheritance will endure forever. In times of disaster, they will not wither. In days of famine, they'll enjoy plenty. God's in charge. Way down in verse 32 of Psalm 37, it says, The wicked lie in wait for the righteous, seeking their very lives. But the Lord will not leave them in their power or let them be condemned when brought to trial. God's in charge. And then in verse 37 of that Psalm, 40 verse Psalm, it says, Consider the blameless. Observe the upright. There is a future for the man of peace. But all sinners will be destroyed. The future of the wicked will be cut off. That's the testimony of Daniel's faithfulness. That he knew that he didn't have to be overcome by evil. He could overcome evil with good. That's what it says in Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And just before this, it says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Then it says, do, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the testimony of Daniel's faithfulness and his civil disobedience. And we see the end result of that right here in Daniel chapter 6. The king corrects his error. Verse 24, at the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, just like it says in Psalm 37. Along with their wives and children, and before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. The lions were hungry. And King Darius issued a new decree. God is glorified through Daniel's activity. King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. God is glorified and Daniel is established in power and influence there in his captivity. It says in verse 28, So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian, and God allowed him to live to see the nation of Israel be sent back, be released from captivity. doesn't tell us that he was able to go back with them, but he got to see the fulfillment, the end of the captivity of 70 years. And Daniel's story does more than teach us about the proper way to practice civil disobedience. It teaches us much more about how to trust God in every aspect of our lives. There's really just one principle we have to keep in mind. It's a verse found in Psalm 37 that I didn't 
quote yet. Psalm 37, verse 3, the very beginning of it, it just says this, trust in the Lord and do good. Trust in the Lord and do good. That's all we have to remember. You may not be able to control the circumstances that are in your life. Sometimes they may be pleasant. Sometimes they may be very unpleasant. And we may not be able to control them, but whether they're pleasant or unpleasant, we can navigate them successfully by trusting God and doing good. All we've got to do is remember who we work for. Amen? Amen? Father in heaven, we just thank you for this opportunity this morning to look into your word. We thank you for the richness of your word. Uh, we thank you for what you've done for us in saving us from our sins, your free gift of salvation that you teach us about right here in your word, that you make it plain. We don't have to guess about it. We can know that we're saved by trusting you. And I just pray that as your children, we would trust you each day with each step of our lives. When things go well, when they don't go well, that we might just reaffirm that we trust you, that we trust you for the outcomes, that we trust you for the ability to, to go through the situations that we're going through and to deal with the circumstances that we have just pray for each person here this morning, Lord, for each family represented here, that you might grant us your blessing, that you might establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Bless us as we go our way. Help us to follow you more fully. In Jesus' name, amen.